Thanks, Brennan. Hey, guys. Good morning. It's wonderful to see you. The sun is shining, and um, I'm amazed at how far a little bit of vitamin D goes with me. Like, my goodness, I am desperate for it. In fact, this morning, my son uh, woke up, and he came downstairs, and uh, he said, I mean, he's like, one of the first things he said, Dad, how much longer until spring? And I said, it's coming, bud. Just a couple more weeks. And he said, we need to have a party when spring is here. And I was like, amen. <laughs> it's been a winter. Um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to John chapter 6. Or if you have uh, a Bible app on your phone or if you're watching online, hello, we're so glad you're here. We really miss you. We really miss seeing you. We miss the feeling of the room just being packed out with worshipers, and we hope that you're having an amazing time worshiping at home, Um, but we can't wait to see you again in person as soon as you feel comfortable to join us. Today we are continuing in our series that we began last week uh, that we are calling I Am. Uh, During the season of Lent, which is the 40 days leading up to the weekend that we remember Jesus' death and resurrection, uh, that, that, that's Lent. Um, during this season of Lent, we are uh, doing a, a series where we're walking through the various statements that Jesus made in the Gospel of John all about himself. And today we are going to be examining Jesus' claim, I am the bread of life. Now, as we said last week, there are lots of claims about who Jesus is in our world today. Some would say that he's the Son of God, or, that he, or would say that he is God himself, Um, Some would say that he's a good teacher. Some would call him a political revolutionary and a martyr. But what we want to do is we want to focus together for these few weeks on who did Jesus say that he was? What did he have to say about himself? Now, the Gospel of John, where we're camping out during this time, and I would encourage you to just, over the course of these, these 40 days, just read John over and over again. Just let the words of John kind of get into your soul. Now, this gospel is written by one of Jesus' closest friends, a guy, a guy named John, um, who was in the inner circle with Jesus. Um, he was there at some of the most critical moments of Jesus' life. And then uh, he, he recorded for us uh, an entire book about the things that Jesus said and did and taught about. And, and the point of John is that it was written to make the case for why you and I should believe that Jesus was more than a good teacher or more than a political revolutionary, but that he was, in fact, the Son of God. The book of John opens with the statement that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, that Jesus is that Word. And, um, and in this book, in this gospel, Jesus makes seven I am statements, these claims that point us to the fact that Jesus is the God of Israel. And so these these words, I am, it's meant to point us back to the story of God's people in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, way back in the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, God God, uh, finds a man named Moses out in the wilderness, and he talks to him through a burning bush. And he tells this guy Moses to go back to Egypt and to tell the Pharaoh and God's people that God was going to set those people free from their captivity in Egypt. And Moses was really nervous, and he asks this burning bush, and he says, who do I tell them is sending me? What is your name? And God responds, tell them that my name is I am who I am. And for the rest of the Old Testament, this phrase, I am, is used to describe who God is. Uh, It's where we get the word Yahweh. And throughout all the rest of history, 
the people of Israel, the Jewish people, refer to him as Yahweh. And, and then when the Old Testament scriptures were translated into Greek, uh, in, and, then, and then the New Testament was written in Greek, uh, this phrase, I am, was translated as ego I me. And this is the words that Jesus uses over and over again. So when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, or I am the light of the world, is what we're going to talk about next week, he is pointing beyond the metaphor of being bread or being light. He is saying emphatically, I am. Ego I me. He's claiming to be the God of the Old Testament who has come in the flesh to save his people, to be like Moses, to rescue God's people out of their slavery and oppression to sin and death. So that's that's the context. Now, before we get into today's text in John chapter 6, let's go back and look at sort of the setting of what is happening that sets up the words that Jesus is about to preach. Everything that happens in John 6 is actually pointing us back to the story of God's people. It's pointing us back to the Exodus. And right before we get into John 6, at the end of John chapter 5, Jesus is talking to the crowds. He's talking to all these religious people, and he says, you don't know who I am, and you don't understand what I'm about because you don't understand Moses. And then just the conversation ends right there, and then we pick it up in a story at the beginning of John chapter 6. Now, Jesus was becoming wildly popular throughout the region of Galilee. People were flocking from all over the place because they had seen and heard about his miracles and his teachings and his provision. And everywhere that he went, crowds of people followed him around. And this had to be exhausting. I mean, just imagine everywhere you went, there's just a ton of people who are like trying to get close to you and asking you questions. And so Jesus, he tells his disciples, his 12 friends, guys, we need to go get a weekend away. Let's get some rest. Go ahead and hop in this boat. We're going to go to the other side of the lake. I know of a really great spot. There's tons of grass and a hill, and let's just go relax over there on the other side. Maybe we'll get some fishing in while we're at it. So they get in the boat. They cross the Sea of Galilee, and when they arrive, what do they see? A giant crowd of people that all gathered in the grass. And so rather than getting their rest that they had hoped for, Jesus and his disciples, they decide to minister to this crowd that was made up of what we, what we read is 5,000 men plus women and children, so several thousand people. Now, if you think about that, they're way out in the middle of nowhere. They're far away from any towns um, out on a hillside. There's no restaurants. There's no food trucks. There's no bathrooms, nothing. And Jesus looks at his disciples, and he said, what are we going to do, guys? How are we going to feed them? And they were like, send them away, Jesus. That's not our problem. That's their problem. Tell them to go home. They can figure it out along the way. And Jesus says, no, you feed them. Go get some food. So they, they take a survey. They walk through the, the field looking for any food they can find. They find one kid who's super prepared, probably an Enneagram 6, and he shows up with uh, a meal. And uh, he's got just a couple of fish and a few uh, loaves of bread. And so they say, this is what we've got, Jesus. And then Jesus prays, and then one of the most famous miracles in all of the Gospels takes place. They feed 5,000-plus people with these five loaves and two fish, and they have 12 baskets full left over. Jesus, in this moment, he is demonstrating compassion and power. He is caring for the physical needs of the people. And think about what, how you would respond if you were a Galilean peasant under the oppressive rule of Rome. 
When the crowd saw how Jesus was able to feed them miraculously, they remembered back to the story of Moses, how God used Moses to lead them out of captivity under the oppressive rule that they were under, take them out into the wilderness, feed them uh, with the food and everything that they need, and then proclaim to them that they were on their way to a new and better kingdom. And then Jesus shows up on the scene, and they're all in captivity, it feels like. They are, it's like they're in Egypt. They're under Rome. And Jesus shows up, and he's again talking about some other kingdom that they might want to go and follow him to. And so they begin following him out into the wilderness, and he's providing food for them. And what they, they immediately think is, maybe this guy is like Moses. And so they start making a plan to make Jesus their king. And Jesus, knowing that they're about to try to like make him their king and, and, and have this uprising and insurrection, he, he like puts paws on it. He tells the crowds, I'm going to go pray up on the mountain. He sends his disciples away. He says, go to the other side of the lake. I'll meet you guys in Capernaum. They get in a boat. They sail off. Jesus goes back to the hill. He, uh, he prays, and then the people were kind of wondering what to do, and they sc- sort of scatter. And, um, and then later that night, a big storm rolls in on the Sea of Galilee while the disciples are sailing across And Jesus decides it's time to go hang out with his friends again. So he starts walking out to where they are on the water. And when they see him, they think that he's a ghost and they freak out. And and they, they start to get really worried. And Jesus responds with words of comfort, again, using the same phrase, Ego I me, I am. Don't worry, guys. Don't be afraid. I am is here. And again, it points us back to the story of Israel being led out of Egypt because Moses was the one who walked through the Red Sea. And Jesus is the I am who treads upon the waters. And again, Jesus and the disciples, they make it all the way to the other side. They get to Capernaum. And what do they find when they get there? Crowds. People are there again. And these crowds, they're hungry for more. They want more of what Jesus showed them just just the day before out on the hillside. They were seeing something in Jesus that they were really excited about, but they were failing to see the big picture. And Jesus takes a moment to bring some correction, to bring a teaching of the kingdom of God that ultimately led to a sort of thinning out of the crowd, as it were. See, these crowds were following Jesus because of the signs that he was providing for them material provisions for life. And they loved the idea of someone who could feed them, but they had failed to take the further step to understand that the one who was feeding them bread had something so much more significant on offer to give them, a different kind of provision. You see, Jesus wasn't content to merely feed God's people He wanted to go beyond that. He wanted to change their entire understanding of the kingdom of God. He tells the crowds that he is a totally different kind of king with a totally different kind of kingdom and that he's bringing something new that is going to shift their way of thinking. You see, they were asking for a king who would help them survive in the wilderness like Moses had. And Jesus comes so that they might thrive in the new life in God's kingdom. Jesus didn't come to just change circumstances or to enhance and give a little bit more comfort. He has come to change their hearts and fundamentally change their understanding of what true reality is. And he explains this to the crowd with a super cryptic phrase. Jesus says, I am 
the bread of life. So you still have your Bible open to John chapter 6? All right, let's read it together, beginning in verse 26. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you were looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And then they asked him, What must we do, or what must we do to do the works of, that God requires? And Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. And Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and you still not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will not drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall not lose Uh, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. This is the word of God. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Now, like last week, if, if you are new to this whole Christianity thing, if you're exploring faith for the first time, if you've never really engaged with the Bible very much, this has got to be a really weird and confusing uh, section of Scripture. If you have lived your entire life in the church and you, you're reading this, it's still super weird. This has got to be tough to follow. And at the core of Jesus' claim here in this passage is that true satisfaction only comes from one place, and that's Jesus himself. That nothing else will ever really satisfy the deepest longings of the human heart. Now, many of you guys know my story, if you've been around for very long. Um, You know that uh, I don't have a testimony of, you know, um, being saved out of the depths of drug addiction and, you know, all kind of, I didn't find Jesus in prison or anything like that. Like, I don't have a cool story like that. I was a church kid. I was born pretty much in the church. My parents were in a 1980s praise band um, <laughs> that traveled around. We, we did worship team practices, and we did kids' church, and we did VBS, and we did Royal Rangers, and we did youth group, and we did kids' camps, and we did conferences, and we did midweek Bible studies. We did all of the church things that you can imagine, and even more. I mean, if the, if the church was open, our family was almost always in there. I never did drugs. I never slept around with girls. I never reveled in in the pleasures of the world. And I know that many people who are here in this room this morning or who are watching online can't relate at all to that story. And all I can tell you is is this is my story. And I remember that when I, when I was in my early 20s, 
And it was a season in my life where, you know, I had made a strong decision. I'm going to follow Jesus all of my days, no matter what. I still had this lingering sense of loss in my life. You see, I, I mean, you remember what it's like to be 20, right? Like, I had this feeling like I was missing out on some important experiences, that the way of Jesus was, it was good, but it was also one of repression and self-denial. And your main hope was that just some, some vague idea that someday in heaven, it was all going to be worth it. Like God would sort of give you an extra portion and say, since you missed out on the fun, here's a little extra blessing in heaven. And so it was around this time that I read a book that probably many of you have read by John Piper, and it's called Desiring God. And this book for me was like water on a parched soul. And the big idea of this book is, is something that John Piper calls Christian hedonism. It's about a, a pursuit of deep satisfaction and joy in God. And that he actually makes a statement. He, he says that, that Christians can actually have more enjoyment in this life than people who sort of live for the pleasures of this world. Here's what he writes in, uh, in Desiring God. The longing to be happy is a universal human experience, and it is good, not sinful. We should never try to deny or resist our longing to be happy as though it were a bad impulse. Instead, we should seek to intensify this longing and nourish it with whatever will provide the deepest and most enduring satisfaction. The deepest and most enduring happiness is found only in God, not from God, but in God. The happiness we find in God reaches its consummation when it is shared with others in the manifold ways of love. To the extent that we try to abandon the pursuit of our own pleasure, we fail to honor God and love people. Or to put it positively, the pursuit of pleasure is a necessary part of all worship and virtue. That is, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Listen to me, friends. The way of Jesus, the way of the Christian faith is not one of repressing desire and stuffing everything down with the hope that someday you'll be happy in heaven. The, the core calling of the Christian is to pursue pleasure and desire and happiness at its deepest level today. And if you are not doing that, Piper would contend you are not living a life of worship or mission. You're living a life of boredom. And it's actually self-centered to, to just renounce all happiness. You see, desire and pleasure are not in and of themselves bad or evil. Desire and pleasure are given to us as gifts from God. But the, the desire for pleasure and happiness that we have deep inside of our souls is intended to lead us beyond the thing that we think will give us satisfaction to God himself who is in himself our satisfaction. Amen? So if you are not living a happy life, if you are not living in joy and satisfaction, and granted, circumstances hit and things get hard and it's not always super happy, clappy, and glad, but if you are not living a life that is in pursuit of deep satisfaction and joy and happiness, my friends, some, you are a little bit skewed from what God has designed you for. The life of a Christian is not one of repression, but of feasting. 
It's not one of mediocrity and boredom and stoicism, but of delight and pleasure and a pursuit of great happiness. God doesn't draw us to himself to kill our desires. He wants to use your desires to draw him to yourself or draw you to himself. And then his great purpose is to rewire you so that you become the kind of person for whom he is the greatest delight and joy. He wants to give you a life of joy and purpose in exchange for what most people settle for in this world of disappointment and frustration and delusionment. Jesus says, do not work for the food that spoils because there is food for you that endures to eternal life. Our culture, all, everything around us is at its, I mean, everything that is offered to you that will give you happiness and joy is on some level a lie. It won't be able to satisfy those longings. It is built on the bread that perishes. Sex, money, influence, fame, luxury. I mean, we, we all know, everybody's heard those stories. There's a million movies out there that tell the story of, of how those are things that don't, even, don't really meet our needs. And yet we still keep pursuing them with, with everything we've got. And then even good things that we think will give us satisfaction, things like family, marriage, success, on, you know, success in whatever you consider success to be, even that, Jesus would say, is not enough. It will never scratch the deepest itch in your soul. And so when I read this book, when I got this concept of Christian hedonism, finding my joy in Jesus, it was so liberating and encouraging for me. You see, what Jesus promises is true life. Jesus promises beauty and poetry and good food. He promises us adventure and excitement. It is as if Jesus' invitation to us is to saddle up our horses. There's a trail to blaze. That was a joke for anybody that was a Christian in the 90s. And if you were not a Christian in the 90s, praise God, you lucked out. We are called to pursue pleasure in our life with him. And so with the time that we have left, I want to I look at two big ideas in this, this statement, I am the bread of life. The first, we're going to talk about life, and then we're going to talk about bread. Now, before we get to the bread part, I want to focus on the life that Jesus comes offering to each of us. In Greek, there are two main words that are used for the concept of life. The first word is bios, and bios refers to our biological life, and zoe. Zoe is all about the quality of life, a life of beauty and abundance. Bios is the, the, the life of your physical body. It's physical survival. It's the span of years that you are given. Now, yesterday, I, along with a number of other people who are part of this church and who are here in this room, uh, I, I came face to face with the very real truth of my mortality. You see, um, our, our dear friend, Michelle Rowan, uh, she is a founding member of this church. She came, uh, she, she was a part of this church before it was a church. She's prayed for and ministered to, can we get the next slide? Um, she prayed for and ministered to countless people over the years. She was uh, on staff at Crossroads. She was a school counselor. She was a, a personal counselor. 
Um, this, I love this picture. It's from the it's from the mid '90s, but I love this picture because it's so it's the it it that's her. That's what she did right there. Just prayed for people and ministered to people. Many of us here in this room have received ministry from her. And Michelle, she went. She was in hospice all week, and um, many of us gathered and we visited her throughout the week. And then yesterday, uh, she finally passed away uh, peacefully in the middle of the afternoon. And so. A, a few of us stayed in, in the room with her, and, um, and we were there for several hours sharing stories of, of her life, crying, being present in the grief. We went through the waves of grief, you know, where grief hits you, it crashes, and then it lifts a little bit, and then you laugh, and you, you smile again, and then it hits you again. And we just did that for hours yesterday. And spending hours sitting next to a cold body brings everything into such clarity. You're faced with the reality that the span of your years is but a breath, and then you are gone. That's what the Bible teaches us. And so when I returned home after sitting next to Michelle's lifeless body, I, I went and I held my baby girl, who's three months old, and she smiled at me, and, and I looked into her eyes, and in her eyes I saw the spark of life in her that was no longer present in our departed sister. You see, Jesus cares about our bios. He cares about our life. He cares what happens to our bodies. He cares about the span of however many years each of us is given it all matters to him. I mean, consider, Jesus cared about the crowds. He fed them. He cared about their, their physical biology. But Jesus came ultimately to give a different kind of life. He came to give us Zoe life. In John chapter 10, he says that he came to give life and to bring us life to the full. You see, he came to bring much more than physical health. He came that we might have abundance with him. The Zoe life that Jesus brings is a divine quality of life. This is why in the vineyard we pray for people to receive physical healing all the time. We, we want to see people's bodies made well. But ultimately, that, that miracle of removing pain or healing from a disease or whatever, eventually you are going to die anyway. That miracle is merely meant to point us to the reality that God has a whole other qualitative type of life in store for each one of us that put our faith in him. We all ache to live a meaningful and deep life. Thoreau said that the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. We want our lives to matter. We want all of this to be for something more than it seems. We long for more than survival. We desire meaning. We want it to count for something. In her famous poem, When Death Comes, Mary Oliver writes, When it's over, I want to say all my life, I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. When it's over, I don't want to wonder if I have made of my life something particular and real. I don't want to find myself sighing and frightened or full of argument. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world. The life that Jesus gives is this kind of life. It is a deep and rich and transcendent way of living. It is union with God. This is what Jesus said in John chapter 17 in his high priestly prayer, that he defines eternal life as knowing God. It's life in relationship with your creator 
who has made you for a purpose. Next, we'll talk about bread. Bread, so good. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Notice, Jesus doesn't say, I have the bread of life. Jesus doesn't say, I know about the bread of life. Jesus says that he alone is the bread that we all crave for our deepest satisfaction. He claims that he alone can satisfy the longings of our souls. You see, so many people in our world today, and if we're honest, probably including all of us in this room from time to time, we look for some way to get the thing that we want that will give us life. And as Christians, we often will look to Jesus as the means to get what we want so that we can have life. But here in John chapter 6, Jesus is pointing to the truth that it is not about what Jesus can give to you. It's about who Jesus is for you. Jesus is the bread. And only God could make a claim like this. Only our creator could say a statement like this. He is saying that there is a hunger that has been designed into your DNA by God that can only be satisfied by God. He, he put it in you to need him, and you will be wandering around all of your life in search of it until you finally find it in him. Jesus says he alone is the fulfillment of that hunger. He is the bread. Now, where was Jesus born? Where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. Good job. Yeah, Bethlehem. Now, do you know what Jesus' hometown of Bethlehem means, what that word means? Actually, don't answer because I want to, I want to say it. I want, I want the credit. Uh, <laughs> the, word, uh, the word bet or beth in, uh, in Hebrew is house. And the word lechem, you know, you got to really get the ch going. The lechem means bread. Bethlehem means house of bread. What is another word for a house of bread? What do we call a house of bread? A bakery. The bread of life was born in a bakery. Now, I know that sounds like silly and kind of ridiculous, and it, but it's more than a cheeky little factoid, okay? Because all of this matters. These details matter to the narrative scripture. The, the Bible is a collection of books. It is a story that is meant to to point us always back to Jesus. Even where he was born is pointing us beyond just the fact that he fulfills some prophecies in his coming. It points us to the fact that we have a longing deep in our souls that can only be satisfied by Jesus. It's good. I think it's really good. So the question is, how do we get this? How do we get this satisfaction? How do you get this bread so that you'll never hunger again? I have very good news for you. This bread is a gift It's all grace. It comes from God, and he is freely giving it to any who would come to him. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The crowds were hoping that Jesus was like Moses. But Jesus is telling them that he is something altogether better. 
He's not like Moses. He is like the Father, who is the true source of their daily bread and everything that they need. You see, they were hoping for somebody like Moses who could feed them the bread, and Jesus points them to the fact that it was never Moses who fed them to begin with. It was always God who did it. And it's free. It's free to anyone. Religion is our attempt to merit or earn the life that we long for. It's our belief that if we work hard enough and if we deny ourselves long enough, eventually we will be fulfilled and happy when we die. And Jesus cuts the legs off of religion and instead offers grace. You see, religion says earn, but Jesus says receive. Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent All Jesus requires of us to be able to receive this gift is to believe in him. All you need to do to receive eternal life is to put your trust in Jesus, to humble ourselves enough to receive the gift that he is offering without any of our own effort. This is an incredible teaching. And while this teaching is incredibly inviting, it ends up offending almost everyone that was in the crowd. They begin to grumble about how strange his words are, how they don't resonate with everything that they had already assumed. And to be fair, these are super strange words. They're weird. And then Jesus, sensing that they're grumbling about his words, he doubles down in verse 53. Look at what he says a few verses later. He says, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. (laughs) Eat my flesh and drink my blood. I got to be honest. Could you imagine being at like a conference, like a church conference or something, and the person gets up on stage and says, if you really want to receive what I've got for you, (laughs) eat my flesh and drink my blood. I'd be freaked out. Cult alert, right? Like get out of there. And yet this statement has become one of the central metaphors of the Christian faith. This is what we talk about every time that we practice communion together. And to the Jewish mind, Jesus was pointing to something that was more than what we eventually know now to be about the cross. Jesus was actually reminding these people of a story that happened way back in the Old Testament to a guy named King David. Now, we all know a bit about David. He was, he was Israel's most favorite king, you know, a man after God's heart. And David, when he was king, he was fighting the Philistines who had occupied his hometown of Bethlehem. And so while they're trying to fight these Philistines and and basically regain their territory, David, he's thirsty. And he has his, his close group of loyal friends who are just like fiercely brave and are willing to do anything for him. And in passing, he talks about how he's thirsty and how he wishes that he could drink a cup of water from the the wells in his hometown of Bethlehem. So these guys hear it, and they're like, let's go. And they sneak past enemy lines into Bethlehem, and they go and they fetch him a single cup of water, and they bring it back to him. And it's just this incredible story of bravery. And when, when David gets this cup of water, like his face sinks, and he takes this cup and he pours it out on the ground. And he said, God forbid that I drink this cup. This water that is in this cup is the very blood of the men who went and got it for me. 
And what David is saying is, I will not profit off of the sacrifice of my men. I'm not that kind of king. But Jesus, in pointing back to this story, he is actually showing us that he's going to do one better. He's going to go beyond it. And he says, if you want to receive the true and good life, you have to receive the true life that comes from the sacrifice that I am going to make for you. I'm going to more than risk my life. I'm going to pour out my life. And I'm going to give you a cup of that life. And I'm telling you, if you want life, it's in drinking the cup. It's beautiful. It's profound. This belief that Jesus says all we need to do to receive life, believe, it's simply this. It's trusting in God's grace every day. It's jumping off the cliff and trusting that your parachute is going to open. It's leaving behind everything that you once thought was going to give you life so that you might receive his grace. You see, the gospel is incredibly simple, but it's not easy. This kind of belief, this kind of faith, it's difficult for us. Your sin has so obscured the, your, your idea of what is real that it's hard to see what is true. Your heart is so bent towards the need to achieve that it can be hard. It can feel like death to just accept something like this as a gift. It's so hard for belie- to believe that the God of the universe created you and loves you and wants you and personally and sacrificially made a way for you. This is too good to be true. Take the bread of life so that you'll never hunger or thirst again. Now in this teaching, we're, we're going to be done here in just a minute. In this teaching, Jesus uses two verb tenses. Jesus uses both the past tense and the present continual tense when he's talking about what it means to take this bread. And this is what that means. He says that there is a moment in your life when you accept this gift. When you take a bite of the bread and you receive everything you need all at once. You're saved and you're made whole spiritually and you're sealed with the Holy Spirit and your name is written in his book and you are his forever. It happens the moment you take a single nibble of the bread that Jesus gives. And at the same time, there is a present continual tense in taking this bread, which means this. We are commanded and called by Jesus to feast on him every single day. He is our daily bread. He is not, it's not a quick nibble and you're done. Jesus isn't a cliff bar that you put in your backpack just in case you get a little bit of hunger. No, Jesus is our bread that we eat every single morning. Isn't that a perfect analogy? Because bread is awesome. I mean, bread is so good, isn't it? Like, I know that it gets a bad reputation and half, our, half the people in our country today are gluten-free and, and everything and that we, we cut carbs in our diet so that we can lose weight. But do you want to know why you fail in your diet time and time again? Because bread is freaking awesome. Like, this is why a year ago when we all went into lockdown, everybody started making homemade sourdough bread and then we ballooned up 15 pounds. It was worth it, worth it. It's like the crust at Blind Onion. It's so good. Praise God. In Isaiah 55, Isaiah says this, Come all who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and you labor on what does not satisfy? Listen Listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. You are invited to feast on the living bread 
that is the only thing that will satisfy. We are called to live this out every single day. We are called to spur each other on to feast and delight and enjoy the true bread that is Jesus alone. And you need to believe that this is for you today. That satisfaction isn't a pipe dream that's around the corner someday if you just meet your next goal. Or satisfaction is not something that awaits you someday when you get to heaven. Jesus promises today, if you eat the living bread, you will never have to thirst or hunger again. Amen? All right, that's it. Let's stand. I know we went a little bit long this morning, but how are you guys doing? Feeling okay? Hungry? Yeah. <laughs> so this morning, um, we're going to take a few minutes and we're going to wait on the presence of the Holy Spirit. We just, what we say is we, we just say, come Holy Spirit, and then we wait to see if he has something to, to say to us, to put, put something in our hearts or maybe a scripture in our, in our minds. Um, and so as we dial down, I want to make the plea that if you have not yet tasted this living bread, if you have not yet even tried Jesus, if you haven't said, I want to experience that life that Jesus says is available to me, I want to invite you to take a step this morning and, and to ask him to come and satisfy you, to, to believe in him, to put your faith in him and see how he meets you right where you are. So let's just take a minute and we'll invite the Holy Spirit. And if that's you this morning, if you have yet to say, I want to try this, Jesus, I want to go in, I want to ask you to, to, to pray a simple prayer, which is, all right, Jesus, I'm in. Come and satisfy me. And just see how he speaks to your heart in this moment. So let's pray. We invite you, Holy Spirit. Lord, we love you. We ask you, Lord, that just the, the very real and weighty, like the the heaviness of your presence would just rest on us in this room and in all of the rooms that our friends online are, are sitting in. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. We ask, Lord, that you would just restore those who are feeling weary and heavy and empty and that you would pour out your joy and your life in heavy hearts, Lord. I pray that you would renew imaginations that have really lost sight of the beauty and the wonder of the life that you promise us.
One of the things that we value here at the Vineyard is the fact that it's not just one person who hears from God on behalf of everyone else, uh, but that everyone gets to play. And so right now, I just want to encourage everybody who's in the room or if you're online to, to really ask the Lord, okay, God, what do you want to use me to do to be able to bless somebody else who needs that life, who needs that encouragement this morning? So antennas up and, and you feel free to look around the room and just see, is God highlighting somebody to go talk to or pray for? We all come in with different things that we're carrying from the week that, that we've just been through. And as the church, we're called to bear each other's burdens. Or maybe God has given you a word for the, the congregation. Um, we want to hear it. So let's, just, let's all just listen. Let's invite the Holy Spirit to help us, help us see what he's doing this morning. Come, Lord.